MSW Media. News with swearing. Daily beans, daily beans. Daily beans, daily beans. Hello and welcome to the Daily Beans for Monday, May 25th, 2020. Today, a Trump election conspiracy collapses. The U.S. pulls out of the Open Skies Treaty. Pompeo still sucks. A huge study debunks hydroxychloroquine. Devin Nunes is dealt another legal blow. A judge tosses the OAN lawsuit against Rachel Maddow. The Denver Post Office closes. Nearly half of Reopen America Twitter accounts are bots. Sullivan hires a lawyer. Loeffler donates a million bucks to the Trump campaign. And Daryl Issa is part of a lawsuit to block mail-in voting in California. I'm your host, A.G., and with me today is Jordan Coburn. Hello. Hey, how are you? I'm good. I did a dab for the first time in two months, so my throat is completely fucked. <laughs> oh, man. <laughs> Ow. Never again. When did you do that? I did it last night. I thought I was ready, and I'm not. I'm only doing edibles. <laughs> ah, well, there you go. Well, you sound fine to me. It's just, uh, but I imagine. <laughs> All right, good. I feel like I feel like I, I sound like a hardened smoker of forty years with curly blue hair. I'm just describing the sisters from The Simpsons. Yeah, <laughs> or gray hair. Whatever. It's like, have. where are you going? <laughs> where are you going with that periwinkle? Um. Well, I, I hope you're having a good long weekend, at least. Yeah, I am. Thank you. How are you? Yeah, I'm good. I'm really good. Um, just trudging along, going through uh, all the news and um, all the uh, personal things going on, just doing it all from home. <laughs> totally. Well, we do have a lot of news to cover today, so uh, let's hit the hot notes. Hot notes. All right, Jordan, what updates do you have for us today? I have got a few updates, all COVID-19 related. Uh, so the first update is about the CDC. And this headline came out a couple days ago, so you may have heard it, but I don't think we covered it yet on here. But apparently they've been mixing up, or not mixing up as though it was a mistake, uh, but, but they've just been conflating two different sets of data when it comes to tests of people that are currently testing positive with COVID-19, and then people that are testing positive for antibodies for COVID-19, meaning that they would have been sick previously. Um, so that's bad for a few reasons. Um, first off, it's not accurate data in the way that they're trying to use this data for stuff like thresholds for reopening or assessing if we have an adequate amount of testing that's currently happening. So one of the things that now there's a fear could have been happening is as we've seen the tests for current COVID-19 patients testing positive, you know, that le that leads us to believe that testing might be, be getting better, but now we're seeing with this sort of conflation, maybe those numbers are actually a decent amount of people that tested positive for the antibody test. So this is kind of, I, I mean, they're saying it's a mistake. I'm not saying I think it was intentional or anything, but it's it's like, to call it a whoopsie, it's a pretty big whoopsie. 
Yeah. Uh, and it's it's getting, I think, I feel like as time goes on, it's getting harder to trust the CDC with their whitewashed reports and their mealy-mouthed language and now uh, combining two different data sets into one. Uh, and and I wouldn't, this is super space beans, but I wouldn't, pa- I wouldn't put it past Trump to, to order the CDC to report those numbers together so that later on he could come out and say that the positive testing was inflated because they were combining, combining mm-hmm. these two things. Uh, I, see, I see what you're saying. But yeah, and, and as you know, we're only testing a certain number of people. Not everyone who wants a test gets a test, which is what we were promised. Uh, and so the, the testing is still going to be dramatically, you know, the number of cases and the number of deaths is still dramatically underreported. Uh, but this makes it harder to make that case when things like this happen. And so I don't know what the fuck is going on at the CDC, but they need to get their shit together. And they're they've they're really losing my confidence and I'm putting more confidence in virologists and and state health agencies uh university research and things like that Mm -hmm. yeah even sadder it's not just the cdc apparently this conflation also happened in pennsylvania texas georgia and vermont um and yeah in virginia most likely had been mixing those two results until last week but then they reversed that and the governor apologized for the practice after apparently it was uncovered by Richmond Times Dispatch and The Atlantic. So, and Maine actually also um, reported similar data too in Vermont, so they didn't even know that they were doing this. So, so whatever, if the super space beans wind up to be true with the CDC with Trump maybe having something to do with them doing that. I feel like this might serve as a counterpoint to that because it sounds like states are also doing mm. it. So I don't know if that's like a easy, if it really is an easy mistake to just make or, or I mean, maybe people are just kind of thinking like, well, yeah, we're just trying to capture how many people have had it. And, and maybe it was like a communication breakdown about how important it is to delineate the two people that currently presently have it versus people who have had it and recovered or what. But whatever's been happening, it sounds like those two numbers have been getting mixed together, like all around in local and federal levels. Well, Occam's razor. I mean, it's probably as simple as maybe some of these tests for coronavirus are only testing whether antibodies are present and not testing for the actual presence of the virus. Uh, and and therefore, you would get a positive test whether the person currently had it or has had it before and developed antibodies if, if you're only testing for antibodies. Mm-hmm. There's no other way to delineate those two numbers. Mm-hmm. And I haven't seen any news from anybody saying, hey, here's here's why those numbers were combined, just that they were. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah, same. So... I'm sure there's going to be a lot of follow-up work on that just because, yeah, that's that's a big, kind of a big deal in terms of data collection. Uh, next yeah. story I have is about, uh, so when Trump closed our borders to Europe, that was, I think, largely seen as sort of, you know, just like a necessary step by many, right? Because it seems logical i think it's very fair to see how that seems like a logical decision there's a lot of cases in europe and we're trying to stop the spread so we're going to close the borders and uh, you know i know there's like a whole debate 
to be had over that decision, which is exactly what I'm actually going to be going over in this piece. Because what seems to have wound up happening was in the moments after they made that announcement that they were going to be closing uh, travel, people that were over in Europe, even if they were sick, were making last-ditch efforts to get to the United States as soon as they could, knowing that they were sick, not knowing if they had COVID-19. And they talk about a story of a kid who was there uh, named Jack Siebert, who is a college student from the U.S., spending a semester in Spain. Apparently, he had really bad headaches, shortness of breath, fevers that got to 104 degrees. But when they made this announcement, Mm. him and his family were like, we just have to get you home. You can't stay over there, obviously. You know, they don't have the resources. Just like, come, we need you to come home. And so he went through the whole process and he came back and he wound up testing positive for COVID-19. And he said that when he was going through all of the customs and different lines and rooms that they put you into when they're bringing you back, um, he just said it was 100%. There's no way people weren't infecting each other and that a lot of those people weren't already infected he said it was people passing through a pinhole i can guarantee you that people were infected so to think that that shit was happening is really scary and epidemiologists are thinking that that could account for some of the like concentrated spikes that we were seeing basically during that time period is it it's at a very critical point when we were trying to stop this very thing from happening the way that people responded to that travel closure and the way that they apparently weren't adequately and couldn't adequately test people in the moment probably led to a lot of people coming over that were infected. So Mm. that's a bummer and kind of one of those things that's already done and over with and moving forward for pandemic preparedness next time, I guess just hopefully they could figure it out next time and do it better i mean i feel like that's really all we can do when it comes to this story which is a bummer but yeah what do you think about that well i i think that the virologists and doctors and experts that were on that uh what was it the crimson tide or the hunt for red october whatever email chain that was going around um in the early days of the virus where you know, when the European travel ban was announced, they were like, well, that's fucking stupid. Mm -hmm. That's pointless. Mm -hmm. Uh, And most doctors and experts were like, you're way too late for that, dude. And Mm -hmm. then what are you going to do? We don't have a rapid test. You're going to take people's temperatures and not allow them to fly. Then they've already infected everyone that they came in contact with at the airport. We don't have contact tracing systems Mm -hmm. in place. It was just a dumb move. Mm -hmm. And so I think this just sort of, sort of, uh, supports that conclusion yeah yeah it is kind of it's a very interesting argument though because you think on the flip side let's say they didn't do the travel ban 100 percent people are still going to try to come home and the question is are they going to try to come home in higher numbers and in more concentrated numbers like it seems like they did when the announcement was made or would it have not really have made a difference you know i guess that's hopefully something that they can determine upon reflection of that policy and what that actually did. Because it's one thing for it to be a dumb idea and like just kind of pointless. It's another thing if it was the cause of a spike in infections coming over here. But that's to be determined, I guess. Uh, Mm. Yeah, my, my next story is 
coming out of the State Department. Um, pretty much they're just trying to consolidate where the pandemic preparedness response team is going to live permanently. Uh, there, There's apparently a plan in the White House to shift our global response to future outbreaks to this new unit that's going to be called PRO, P-R-O, stands for President's Response to Outbreaks. Uh, but it's kind of being seen as a bit of like a like a turf war. That's what they, they called it in an article. Uh, and the turf war basically is between the State, State Department and the U.S. Agency for International Development. Um, how do you say that acronym? Just USAID? Um, I see it all the time, and I never know how you're supposed to say it. U.S. Agency for International Development. I just usually say USAID, but I mean, I could be wrong on that. Ah, USAID. That makes sense. Because we were, we were wrong. We were wrong with the. I was wrong with the NOAA thing. Oh, I forgot about so. that. Yes, but anyway, so uh, uh, the the new group that they're trying to form in the State Department is probably probably would be headed up by Dr. Deborah Burks. We know her. We've seen her all around. <laughs> Um, and it's kind of also definitely seeming like it's supposed to be some sort of response to them not being happy with not only USAID, but also WHO. So it's kind of being seen as some sort of response effort, sort of like a, we'll do it better in the state department and we want to oversee all the shit. So they, they, they want to put it there and, and their reasons are because they just think it'll be better and more effective. And uh, State Department or, or an official from USAID said that he just sees it. They see it as a power grab by the State Department. And then another official said, my read of it is they're unhappy with USAID. Um, USAID hasn't been able to deliver on certain things. So a lot of people haven't been able to deliver. Yeah, there's been issues. Yeah, <laughs> totally. But it's the yeah, other looks like they're going to do that. Probably. I'd be surprised if it doesn't happen. I don't really know why it wouldn't if he has the authority to do that. Uh, and my final story is about hydroxychloroquine. So, dun, dun, dun. yep, a huge study came out that finds that hydroxychloroquine is actually linked to a greater risk of death with people who are seriously ill with COVID-19. Uh, they're more likely to die or develop dangerous irregular heart rhythms. And that was a study published Friday, an observational study in the medical journal The Lancet. Of course, Trump's been pushing this drug a lot. So just kind of another thing that he's promoting that's potentially caused more deaths. So that's a bummer. <laughs> definitely. Yeah. Since the damage is kind of already done. Yeah. Definitely. And just for uh, uh, just, you know, to make, uh, you know, make it clear, The Lancet actually did write a rare rebuke op ed against Donald Trump, which I've never seen a medical journal do. And so I'm I'm I haven't heard Trump dismiss it yet for that. You know, The Lancet, it's a it's a it's a Clinton uh, <laughs> Obama uh, situation like I haven't heard him say that yet I'm waiting and, and you know any time for it unless I missed it I mean he tweets every 10 seconds so I could have missed it mm -hmm. um, and I'm not you know sorry I'm not scouring his Twitter account I just don't <laughs> yeah. but uh, anyway yeah that's uh, almost 100,000 patients and they're still trying to use it at the VA um, 
which scares the shit out of me. I'm a veteran. If I end up with COVID, I, I have to go to the VA hospital. If they try to give me hydroxychloroquine, I'm going to refuse to take it. And every veteran should. Um, we shouldn't be used as, as guinea pigs for his uh, re-election drug. Mm-hmm. So. Speaking of going to the doctor on Tuesday, I have to go into my dermatologist to get something taken off my body that's like kind of ambiguous in terms of if it's cancer or not. And I'm kind of nervous. Oh, really? Yeah. Not even about the thing, but about just like going in. I called them and I was like, hey, I'm just trying to gauge, you know, I'm supposed to come back when it's like chill for me to come back. Is it like, is it chill for me to come back or what's the, what's the status there? And then they were just like, I mean, they said someone would call me back and then they just call me back and scheduled me. So I'm assuming it's okay-ish. I don't know. I'll keep you guys updated, and I'll have a an inside view of what the hospitals, at least this hospital, feels like, and and how like the protocols are going. I mean, a hospital is generally like the cleanest place you could possibly be, but still, kind of nerve wracking. Yeah, yeah. Well, you're not going like full under, right? No, no, no. It's just gonna be like a little like scalpel and local. Is that the thing? Yeah. What's that called? What's that slicey thing called? The the butter the butter knife <laughs> you, of the epidermis whatever <laughs> you got it you got it the butter knife scalpel it's more of a paring knife probably <laughs> <laughs> uh, all right yeah. well thank you for those updates very important news uh, and I will be speaking with you later in the show for good news and quarantine confessions I'm excited about that uh, but for now we're going to take a quick break and we'll be right back right back with some headlines that may have flown under the radar so stick around after these messages we'll be right back Hey everybody, it's AG, and this episode of Daily Beans is brought to you by my favorite puzzle game app called Best Fiends. Best Fiends is part of my personal self-care routine. It's a great distraction when I need a break from today's insane politics and news. Uh, The best thing is the more I play, the more fun and exciting it gets. Reaching each new level feels like uncovering a new layer in a story, but it's one you get to be part of. And Best Fiends is an amazingly fun five-star rated game app that's free to download. Uh, It's got bright, vibrant colors and designs, fun characters. Uh, It combines an exciting story with challenging puzzles to engage your brain. Keeps me on, you know, on point. Uh, It's a casual game, so you don't have to be a gamer to play. Anyone can play, but it's easy to get obsessed with it in the best way. You collect tons of characters you need to use them strategically for each level. You can level them up. Um, And I'm on, oh gosh, level 180 now. One of our listeners is on like level 400 or 500. It's absolutely insane. Um, and you know, I think one of the great things about it is it has thousands of levels and so it it never gets old and they add brand new levels all the time and they have events and they add characters every month. So it's always fresh. It's hours of fun right at your fingertips. I think my favorite thing about it is that you can even play offline. So it doesn't require the internet, which can be slow these days because we're all at home trying to use it. I play it a lot. Um, so that really helps. And with over 100 million downloads and tons of five-star reviews, Best Fiends is a must-play. Download Best Fiends free on Apple on the Apple App Store or Google Play. That's friends without the R, Best Fiends. All right, everybody, welcome back. Um, today in the news that has flown under the radar from Politico, a Trump election conspiracy collapses in Florida when a law enforcement agency said it has found no widespread voter fraud in the 2018 midterm races for Senate and governor. 
Trump tweeted multiple times about election fraud in Florida during the midterms, but no one was able to find any fraud during the 17-month-long investigation. Investigators did find, however, that a panhandle election supervisor in a Republican-heavy county um, that was just reeling from Hurricane Michael might have broken the law by allowing a dozen votes to be emailed in and counted, but state prosecutors said there was too little evidence to bring a case. A spokesperson for the Trump campaign has refused to comment. What a shock. Uh, And President Trump has decided in all of his infinite wisdom to withdraw from another major arms control accord. Uh, He and other officials said Thursday um, that they will inform Russia that the United States is pulling out of the Open Skies Treaty. This was negotiated three decades ago uh, by Papa Bush to allow nations to fly over each other's territory Um, with elaborate sensor equipment to assure that they are not preparing for military action. Uh, Mr. Trump's decision may be viewed as more evidence that he's preparing to exit another major arms treaty with Russia called New START, which limits the United States and Russia to 1,550 deployed nuclear missiles each. Pompeo says, we don't have to have the same amount of nukes. Um, And that arms treaty expires in February, weeks after the next presidential inauguration. And Trump has insisted that China must join what is now a U.S.-Russia limit on nuclear arsenals. And even as the administration discloses or disclosed Mr. Trump's intention to withdraw from the Open Skies Agreement, the president held out the possibility of negotiations with the Russians that could save American participation in the accord. Mr. Trump's decision, rumored for some time now, is bound to further aggravate European allies, including those in the North Atlantic Treaty Organization, NATO, uh, (laughs) who are also signatories to the treaty. So does this hurt Russia or does this help Russia? I think the answer is pretty clear. Um, The NATO countries are likely to remain in the accord, which has nearly three dozen signatories, but they have warned that with Washington's exit, Russia will almost certainly respond by also cutting off their flights, which the allies use to monitor troop movements on their borders, especially important to the Baltic nations. Uh, For Mr. Trump, this decision is the third time he has pulled out of a major arms control treaty. Uh, As we know, two years ago, he abandoned the Iran nuclear deal uh, negotiated by Obama. Last year, he left the Intermediate Range Nuclear Forces Treaty, um, saying it would, uh, that he would not participate in a treaty that he said Russia was violating. When he announced his intention to withdraw, uh, he, he said that he thought the Russians would seek a new deal uh, back then for that treaty, but they did not. And so under the auspices that he wants to rene- renegotiate this and possibly the New START deal, the, you know, the Open Skies Treaty and the New START deal, under the auspices that we want to renegotiate with China and Russia, that hasn't happened in the past, so don't expect it to happen in the future. And Elliot Engel, who is the uh, chairman of the House Foreign Affairs Committee, called Mr. Trump's move illegal, noting that the 2019 National Defense Authorization Act, the NDAA, requires that the president give Congress 120 days notice before beginning the withdrawal process. Mr. Trump signed that act, and it's uh, a law. He has to uphold it. For more than a year, uh, Mr. Trump has said he would not renew the New START treaty negotiated by Obama in 2010 unless China also joined. Um, Of course, China is rejecting that idea, and it's unclear how that might work, even if China agreed. Uh, With 1,550 deployed nuclear weapons each, the United States and Russia would never be willing to reduce their arsenals to the 300 or so held by China. And allowing China to build up to American and Russian levels seems fucking stupid. Uh, And the White House and State Department failed Friday to hand over documents related to the probe 
by both chambers of Congress, by the way, the Senate, um, the Republican-controlled Senate and the House of Representatives, are investigating Trump's abrupt firing of the State Department Inspector General Steve Linick. We've talked about this a lot on our show. Uh, again, Elliot Engel, chair of the House Foreign Affairs Committee, and also Senator Menendez, the ranking member, the Democrat of the Senate Foreign Relations Committee, launched investigations last week into Linux removal and demanded that the Trump administration preserve all the documents related to it and hand them all over, uh, all the documents related to Linux firing by last Friday night. According to the House Foreign Affairs Committee aide, there's a, this is who spoke on, you know, the, under the auspices of anonymity, no documents have been received by either committee. And this aide said, quote, the White House and State Department failed to provide an adequate response to Saturday's records request, but pressure is building and the truth will come out. Uh, officials investigating the matter believe Linick was removed in retaliation for pursuing an investigation into whether Pompeo made a staffer run personal errands for him, walk his dog, pick up his laundry, and they're also looking into the emergency declaration made by Pompeo to circumvent Congress to approve the sale of $8 billion in arms to Saudi Arabia. Uh, of course, we will keep you apprised uh, you know, on this story as it unfolds. But again, we have another refusal uh, of an agency in the Trump administration to hand over documents requested by Congress. I'm sure some sort of... I mean, we could start the whole dance again. There'll be an immunity claim, some sort of absolute presidential blanket immunity of white privilege. And then, of course, they're, you know, they could uh, do subpoena and then the subpoenas will be ignored and then they could try to hold in contempt. But Barr isn't going to bring contempt charges against anybody in this administration. And then they could go to court. And, of course, now we're looking at two, two years down the road. So same, same old song and dance. So vote in November if you want all this shit to be handed over. And from CBS4 in Denver, a U.S. Postal Service facility there in Denver, Colorado, is defying orders to shut down after the city and county health department reported multiple COVID-19 cases among employees. The massive sorting facility at uh, 53rd and Quebec Street handles mail for all of Colorado and Wyoming. Officials with the Denver Department of Public Health and Environment um, say they issued a closure order as a last resort because United States Postal Service officials are not cooperating with their investigation. USPS spokesman David Rupert said there's no current outbreak there. And the last time a worker tested positive was May 2nd. Uh, and USPS officials also argue that the facility provides essential services. Quote, the Postal Service is an entity of the federal government, and the provision of postal services to the American people is designated and is an essential function under federal law during times of an emergency. Um, this closure, they say, has the potential to impact stimulus checks, prescription medications, personal correspondence, and vital goods delivered to the more than 6.5 million customers who live in Colorado and Wyoming. In its order, Denver officials said the facility should remain closed until the facility can be sanitized and safely, or, and safety procedures, including employees being checked for symptoms and being required to wear face coverings, are followed. They also want the Postal Service to report any new coronavirus cases within 24 hours. Wouldn't it be great if the federal government put those same requirements on nursing homes and meatpacking plants? Uh, but, you know, they're specifically going after the United States Postal Service. The Postal Service says um, it's meeting all the CDC and federal guidelines for COVID-19, but they're being personally singled out. I wonder why that is, especially with Trump's, uh, you know, all of a sudden in an election year bitching about vote by mail, which many states have been doing for a really long time uh, and which the president himself does. Um, 
And this is an interesting story. Nearly half of the Reopen America Twitter accounts are bots. And that's according to new reporting from Business Insider. Uh, From an analysis conducted at Carnegie Mellon, they looked at over 200 million tweets going all the way back to January that promote the reopening of America. And nearly half are from bots. And 62% of the 1,000 most influential retweeters of these uh, tweets are also bots. And it's normally, in a normal thing like the election or Russia, you get about 10 to 20% bot activity. Here we have half. Uh, And you'll want to listen to this week's Mueller She Wrote episode. Because I have an interview, a really good in-depth interview with cybersecurity, pandemic security expert who wrote the book on botnets. Literally, his name is Alan Silberberg. Uh, he was asked by the DNC uh, when during the hack to come and look at the Podesta emails, uh, the, the the phishing email that he was sent. So you're definitely going to want to hear that interview. It's on the it's up now. It's the Mueller she wrote uh, episode for Sunday, May twenty fourth, twenty twenty. And finally, the uh, husband of Kelly Loeffler, we know the Georgia senator under scrutiny for her suspicious stock trades following a classified briefing about coronavirus. Uh, Her husband has donated a million dollars to the America First Action PAC. That's the largest PAC supporting the reelection of Trump outside of his own campaign. The donation comes as Loeffler faces an uphill climb with her own 2020 campaign. Because Loeffler, see, she didn't win her election. She was appointed to the Senate by a Governor Brian Kemp, to replace former Senator Johnny Isaacson, who stepped aside for health reasons. Uh, Trump had wanted Kemp to appoint Doug Collins, uh, current representative from Georgia, just a piece of work, that guy, uh, and he is now challenging Loeffler for the Senate seat. Loeffler has the worst favorability rating in the field at 21% positive, 59% negative. She trails all of the Democrats in the race in hypothetical head-to-head matchups by double digits, while Collins is running even. So, oh, look, we're not doing so well. We really need Trump's support. He really wants Doug Collins. Uh, Let's give him a million dollars. Should be interesting to see how that plays out. <laughs> uh, because Trump would have to pivot from supporting Doug Collins to supporting Kelly Loeffler. And she's currently, you know, being looked at for her stock trades. Could be insider trading. Uh, we know Richard Burr, the Republican head of the Senate Intelligence Committee, has stepped aside as the chair of that committee uh, because he was, the FBI executed a warrant on him for his insider trading uh, once it was revealed that a family member also sold off stock after he received that confidential briefing on coronavirus. And so it'll be, in, but you know, obviously sold off a bunch of stocks before the market tanked. So it'd be interesting to see. Uh, we'll be right back to discuss Trump trying to override governors and the judge in Flynn's case, Sullivan, hiring a high-powered D.C. attorney to represent him in the appellate court case. Was, we'll be talking uh, with Steve Vladek right after this quick break. So stay with us. Hey, everybody. This Helping of Daily Beans is brought to you by Ancestry DNA. There are many paths to finding your family story. Whichever way you choose, tracing your family generations back with a family tree or uncovering your ethnicity with Ancestry DNA, it's easy to get started with Ancestry. 
An Ancestry DNA test tells you where your ancestors are from, and Ancestry's billions of records and millions of family trees let you discover their personal stories. Ancestry DNA can reveal ethnic origins and provide historical details that bring unique family stories to life. And Ancestry DNA doesn't just tell you which countries you're from or where your family originated, but it can pinpoint specific regions within those countries, which gives you a really insightful geographic you know, picture about your history. You can trace the past of your recent ancestors and learn how and why your family moved from place to place around the world. No other DNA test delivers such a unique and interactive experience. You could find a famous relative or perhaps a photo of your great-grandma as a little girl. Whatever you find, it is sure to change the whole way you look at your family history and yourself. Uh, after all, the story of your family is the story of you. Uh, when I got my results back, I learned I'm related to two people named Rosencrantz and Guildenstern, uh, which, you know, uh, aren't the real fake Rosencrantz and Guildenstern, but those were their names. And one of my ancestors was a comedy musician who played the banjo in the 20s in New York named Harry Reeser. So it's easy to start making discoveries with Ancestry. So grab an Ancestry DNA kit and start a free trial to amplify your discoveries with Ancestry's billions of online records. Start exploring your family story today. Head to my URL at Ancestry.com slash Daily Beans to get your Ancestry DNA kit and start your free trial. That's Ancestry.com slash Daily Beans. All right, everybody, welcome back. Joining me today to discuss some constitutional legal questions is the A. Dalton Cross Professor of Law at the University of Texas School of Law and CNN contributor Steve Vladek. Steve, welcome back to the show. Thanks for having me again. Yeah, no, I, I really, really uh, learned a lot from the last time we spoke, and I've got a couple of questions about the social media arguments surrounding you know, Trump announcing he would override governors if they continued to keep churches closed. Um, some argue he can't do this because of the 10th Amendment, while others argue he can because of the First Amendment. And I was hoping you could briefly explain why they're using those amendments and whether either of those apply. Yeah, I mean, I think there's a lot of um, Twitter law school going on in, in these debates. Um, so so the way I think it's, it's, it's probably easiest to unpack these issues is let's start with the orders themselves. So, you know, governors, mayors, what have you, there are all of these local and state um, shelter in place or stay home restrictions. And of course, it's possible that those orders could themselves be unconstitutional. The First Amendment and the freedom of religion, the free exercise of religion um, applies to the states through the 14th Amendment. Um, and so it's possible that if, for example, a locality was singling out houses of worship as especially subject to closure orders, um, that would run afoul of the First Amendment without anything the president says, like without regard to anything the president does, what the local or state government is doing could itself be unconstitutional. Most of these orders aren't because under the current Supreme Court doctrine, a 1990 decision called Employment Division versus Smith, um, the free exercise clause is not um, offended by a state or local law that even if it burdens religious practice, doesn't single out religious practice. That is neutral. It's a law of general applicability. So we can apply zoning regulations to churches. We can apply building codes to churches. And by similar logic, we can apply shelter-in-place orders to churches. The ones that are, I think, you know, getting into some trouble in court are the ones that have actually singled out at least some religious services. Mm. So that that's the sort of that's the the first amendment side for, of, about these the, these sort of local and state orders. So, can I ask you a quick question? So, it it might it might run afoul of the Constitution if, let's say, you just closed mosques. 
Exactly so. Or if you just or if or if, if you just close houses of worship as opposed to you know other Businesses. comparable institutions in your city. That's right. And so you know I don't I, I don't think anyone is suggesting that the free exercise clause is just irrelevant to this conversation. Um, the critical point is that whether the free exercise clause is offended turns entirely on these local and state orders themselves and not in any way whatsoever on what the president thinks about them. Got it. Um, and then turning to the president. So, you know, it is true that the federal government, um, through uh, the power that Congress has to enforce the Reconstruction Amendments, to enforce the 14th Amendment, um, the federal government does have the power to legislate in the area of religious freedom. And so, for example, there's a very famous statute from the 1990s called the Religious Freedom Restoration Act. Um, Congress could theoretically have chosen to single out houses of worship um, and could have said, I think by statute, that houses of worship, you know, in order to justify closing a house of worship, a local or state government actor needs an especially heavy, you know, an especially strong justification. The problem is that Congress has never said that. There, you know, the Religious Freedom Restoration Act doesn't go that far, and there's no other statute on the books that does that. So when the president comes along and says, I am overriding these local and state orders, um, he's just talking out of his rear because <laughs> he has no statutory authority to do that, and he has no constitutional authority to do that. He may disagree with some of the courts, with, you know, with commentators about whether particular local or state shelter-in-place orders offend the First Amendment, but that's just his opinion, and you know, no local or state official is bound by the president's interpretation of the First Amendment. Okay, so if anybody sued, this would likely not make it very far. Well, I think it depends. I mean, so, I, you know, there, there have been a couple of cases where private entities, where religious um, um, entities, religious institutions, houses of worship have successfully challenged some local shelter-in-place orders because they were, you know, unduly singling out houses of worship. I think the critical point, though, is those cases which have been blown up all over the media are the exception, not the rule, that the overwhelming majority of the shelter-in-place orders across the country um, either haven't been challenged on those grounds or can't really be challenged on those grounds because they are strictly neutral. And so, you know, the president may disagree with the effect of these neutral shelter-in-place orders on houses of worship, but there's nothing he can do about it besides resort to the bully pulpit. There's no constitutional power to countermand these state and local orders. There's no statutory authority to do so. The, you know, the most aggressive thing the federal government can do is participate in some of these private lawsuits, is show up and file statements of interest um, in the existing lawsuits brought by churches and other entities against these local governments. And even there, I mean, there was a, you know, there was a big, a big deal was made on Friday about an Illinois case where the federal government is joining in an Illinois state representative's lawsuit against Governor Pritzker. And DOJ showed up on Friday and filed a statement of interest that said nothing about the First Amendment, (laughs) Um, right? Where the the only actual problem DOJ identified in a statement of interest was that Governor Pritzker's order might run afoul of Illinois state law. And, you know, I'm not an expert on Illinois state law, but why the Justice Department has an interest in whether the state of Illinois is following its own law is a little lost on me. But so I think, you know, the rhetoric is really, I think, running far ahead of the con law here. And, and how does this play out with, I mean, it seems like Republicans, 
uh, under certain auspices are all for states' rights, and then under certain other auspices are not. And and so, it, is that the Fourteenth Amendment? Yeah, I mean, so the Fourteenth Amendment is part of. I mean, I, I think you know the, the the common response that that you see when folks get pushed on this is, well, you know, I'm all for states' rights, but not when they're violating the Constitution, <laughs> um, <laughs> right? I, and, you know, the problem is that, again, that, that, that presupposes the answer to the First Amendment question, that everyone has taken it as a given that all of these orders violate the free exercise clause of the First Amendment when it's clear, I think, beyond peradventure that almost all of them don't. And so, you know, that's it, – it's, it's sort of a, a very, I think, weak and superficial defense to the state, you know, why, why don't you care about states' rights anymore because I care about the – you know, all the Constitution. The Tenth Amendment doesn't override the First I mean, that's true so far as it goes. But again, that presupposes that these orders are all somehow flagrantly in violation of the First Amendment when almost none of them are. Once you start from that point, you know, the sort of the extent to which this is running roughshod over really fairly conventional and what ought to be bipartisan principles of federalism um, is pretty stunning. Yeah. And I really like your example that, you know, churches are have to be compliant with uh, building codes and, uh, you know, zoning law and other types of law with that. And that and those laws don't run afoul of 1A. So why would this one? Yeah, I mean, and again, I think you know, this is what but, but I think the other thing that I think is is complicating the nuance here is that, you know, every local and state shelter in place order is different. And so the president might want everyone to believe that, like, every single shelter-in-place order violates the First Amendment by pointing to one or two that might. But, you know, I think that the key is to keep in mind that as long as the order is neutral, as long as houses of worship aren't being singled out for any kind of, you know, negative treatment, whether in, you know, the letter of the order or in its effect, um, that's not, at least under current doctrine, a First Amendment problem. And so, you know, the majority of the orders, the ones we're not talking about, are not vulnerable to these kinds of First Amendment objections. Yeah, and I suppose the remedy in those very few cases would be to amend the stay-at-home order so that it doesn't run, you know, violate constitutional 1A. That, that's right, and we've seen that. I mean, we've, I think there are a couple of jurisdictions that have already revised their orders. Um, you know, here in Texas, I think there was one county order that raised First Amendment concerns that was overridden by the governor at the state level. So, mm-hmm. you know, again, the... The, the remedies exist for the small minority of cases where there really are serious First Amendment issues coming up from these orders. Um, the remedy is not for the president to, you know, by nationwide Twitter decree, um, declare that all houses of worship are exempt from these orders when, you know, first of all, those orders are not actually violating the constitutional rights of almost all of those houses of worship. And second, the president has no power, you know, on his own without help to go out enforcing the First Amendment against these institutions on its own. Uh, without Congress. Without Congress, right. I yeah. mean, so this, again, this would be, a, if, if there were a statute that was called, you know, the Houses of Worship Pandemic Exclusion Act or something like that, mm-hmm. um, you know, the president, of course, is empowered to enforce a statute. And mm-hmm. if you have courts that are actually striking down some of these orders on First Amendment grounds, the president has the power to, you know, enforce court orders. Um, but that's not where we are. And one last thing just before, you know, before losing the thread, part of why we don't have statutes like that is because one of the you know, messy things about the First Amendment is, yes, there's a free exercise clause, but there's also an establishment clause. Um, and the establishment clause says the government can't prefer religion. Mm-hmm. So you know, the, the tricky part here is, is 
I think there are a lot of folks who wish that there were special exceptions for houses of worship that actually exempted them from these neutral rules. But those exceptions actually run into a different First Amendment problem, which is government preferences for religion. Ah, yeah. Sanctioning religion. I got it. Um, All right. Well, while I have you on another topic, I wanted to ask you about a story from The Washington Post that Judge Sullivan, uh, the judge presiding over the Flynn case, has hired D.C. attorney Beth Wilkinson to represent him in defending his decision to the D.C. Circuit Court of Appeals. Now, our listeners are very familiar with the events so far up until this story. And Sullivan has been now given 10 days by the appellate court um, to respond to Flynn's mandamus Uh, that he wrote to them. Uh, But I've never heard of a judge hiring a lawyer. Uh, Any idea what she'll be doing in this case and why it's resorted to this? Yeah, I mean, so I should say I I have heard of it. It's rare. I mean, and I think the the key part here is that mandamus itself is weird um, because, you know, a petition for rid of mandamus is basically a lawsuit against the lower court. Um, Usually in the typical case, we don't need the lower court judge to show up because whoever benefited from the lower court decision being challenged is going to be the adverse party in the Court of Appeals. Um, And so we usually call that party the real party in interest, even though the respondent is actually the district court. Um, You get these weird captions. I mean, there's one of the most famous Fourth Amendment cases the Supreme Court's ever decided. It's called U.S. versus U.S. District Court because it was a mandamus petition. Um, So, you know, in most mandamus cases, which are weird enough already, the district judge is already the respondent but there's someone else who's actually standing in as the real party in interest. This is complicated here because DOJ isn't actually on the opposite side of Flynn anymore, um, right? That, that there's no adverse real party in interest in the district court, which is why Sullivan's left as the only person who can defend what he's doing. Um, that's weird. Um, it's not unprecedented. I mean, this is not the first time that you've had a mandamus where you know, neither party from the district court was willing to defend the district court. And in those circumstances, you know, my experience has been that judges hire lawyers because it's rather different to have the district judge personally appearing um, and personally arguing before his or her own superior court versus the sort of detached, disinterested, you know, outside counsel who can represent the district court, because at that point, the district court is not just the lower court. The district court's a party. Um, and, you know, you know what they say about uh, a lawyer who, ha- who hires him, who, a lawyer who has himself or, you know, who hires, uh, I'm going to mess up the saying, but the, a client, who, a, a lawyer who represents himself, right, has a fool for a client. Yep, yep. So, so I think, I mean, I think there was this huge reaction on the conservative Twitter sphere, like, oh my gosh, you know, this just proves how nefarious Sullivan is. And my reaction is, No, this proves how awkward the procedural posture of this case is because DOJ is refusing to defend its own indictment and guilty conviction. Yeah, when you have Barr versus Flynn, uh, they're both on the same side of the line. So, um, and and what do you think of the panel, the D.C. Appellate Court panel, Henderson, Wilkins, and Rao? We know Rao is, and and we should never, I've never talked about who appointed judges until Trump was in office, but... Uh, Rao was appointed by Trump. I believe Wilkins uh, is was Obama. Is Obama, and then Henderson is is GW, HW. Uh, no, I'm sorry, uh, uh, GHW. Yeah, Poppy Bush. Uh, a lot of people, a lot of um, liberals are worried about this panel. I I am not. I mean, I'm worried about Rao, but not so much Henderson. What do you think about it? 
Well, I mean, I think the, the question, it's it certainly as good a panel as I think Flynn could have drawn. Um, and I think it's, you know, it's, it just, it worked out well that that happened to be the emergency motions panel in the DC circuit this month. Um, I, I think the, you know, the DC circuit back to sort of mandamus being weird. Um, the DC circuit has just about the highest bar to mandamus relief of any court of appeals in the country. And so, you know, even with that panel, um, it's not at all clear to me that this is, you know, a foregone conclusion by any stretch. Um, because, you know, Flynn has to show both a clear and indisputable right to relief, which means a heck of a lot more than just Sullivan erred, right? It means Sullivan erred in a way that no reasonable jurist could have erred and that that error can't be corrected adequately later in the process. Um, and, you know, it, it seems to me worth stressing that at this point, when all Sullivan has done is invited amicus briefs, um, right, when he hasn't actually ruled on the Justice Department's motion to dismiss, I don't see the argument, even if you, you know, are not at all sympathetic to Sullivan doing anything other than dismiss, he hasn't decided to not dismiss yet. Mm. Um, and so it's not all clear to me why mandamus would be premature, at, what wouldn't be premature at this stage, why at the very least, Sullivan should first have to rule on the motion to dismiss before we go back to the D.C. Circuit. I assume that's one of the things that, you know, Beth Wilkinson is going to be saying in her capacity as Sullivan's counsel. But I also say that because one of the authors of many of the D.C. Circuit's restrictive mandamus cases is Judge Henderson. Um, and so, you know, it's not beyond the realm to me that we get a denial of the writ here with some strong language directed at Sullivan, basically like, you know, we're not issuing a writ here, but mm. we'll be watching you. Yeah. And I mean, he did say, I can't remember if it was in his minute order or it might have been Gleason who said that they opposed the motion to dismiss, uh, even though they haven't decided that they were going to do that. I'm, I'm assuming that will come up. I'm assuming uh, Judge Sullivan's remarks about treason will come up. Uh, and uh, but it I, it is important, and you pointed this out, that, were, that a lot of people are crying foul with this panel, but you're saying that this is the panel that happens to be handling emergency filings this month, so this is just, there's no foul play. No, this was, I mean, this was always going to be the panel that got that got this, you know, as, as long as Flynn filed in the second half of May, he was going to get this panel. Gotcha. Um, and the way the timing worked out, you know, I think that, I, I, I mean, I don't, I don't, I don't think there's any real sort of, um, strategic manipulation going on here. But I also think it's worth stressing. I mean, I think one of the points that, you know, I think is is more obvious to lawyers than to non-lawyers is that there's a huge difference between mandamus and de novo review. That, you know, the question the Court of Appeals is supposed to be asking at this stage is not whether Sullivan did wrong, um, right? Whether or not he did. It's whether his, it's whether it was so badly wrong that no reasonable jurist could have made that error and that no, you know, no remedy later on in the, in the litigation will make Flynn whole. And I just, you know, ideology aside, who appointed them aside, I just don't see a majority of any right court of appeals panel looking at where we are right now anyway, and saying that Flynn somehow meets both prongs um, of the standard for mandamus. And if they do, um, I don't see such a decision surviving on bonk review. That was my next question. Can Sullivan appeal on bonk? So um, it's not it's not actually clear. I mean, one of the weird things is that it's not clear under the rules whether he's a party or not. 
Um, right. So under Rule 21 of the Federal Rules of Appellate Procedure, he's actually not allowed to appear in the Court of Appeals until he's until he's either ordered to or invited to. Um, but he won't need to take the you know, no one needs to trigger on bonk under the D.C. Circuit's rules. Um, on bonk can be what's called sua sponte, meaning any judge, um, any active judge on the Court of Appeals can ask the court to rehear the case whether or not they've been asked to do so. Ah. So I don't think, you know, I don't think Sullivan has to do anything more at this point besides let Beth Wilkinson represent him. And if the ruling comes out, you know, in a way that he disagrees with, let the D.C. Circuit, you know, sort of handle its matters internally. So Wilkins, who's on this three judge panel, if it goes two to one against Sullivan, Wilkins can ask for en banc. Wilkins can. And so can any of the other active right. judges on the Court of Appeals, including the ones who are not on this panel. Uh, awesome. Okay, good to know. Um, thank you. Thank you so much for, for answering those questions. Uh, I'm really glad you joined me today. Everybody, uh, A. Dalton Cross, Professor of Law at the University of Texas Law School, CNN contributor Steve Vladek. Steve, thank you again for joining me. Anytime. Happy, happy long weekend. Yes, yes. Happy long weekend to you as well. And everyone, stick around with us because right after this break, we have the good news and quarantine confessions. You don't want to miss it. Stay with us. Hey, everybody, it's AG, and this portion of Daily Beans is brought to you by Sun's Oil CBD. From lattes to dog treats, CBD is popping up in everything now, but it's confusing, it's complicated. Where do you start? How can you tell what's good and what's not? And even more importantly, who can you trust? Those were some of the questions I had, and Sun's Oil CBD had all the answers. With Sun's Oil, you know what's in every bottle and exactly where it comes from. There's no second guessing because they only use ingredients you can understand and trust. Most of their products have just two, organic hemp and organic coconut oil. Transparency and quality control are what set Sun's Oil apart from the rest. They farm all their own hemp in the green mountains of Vermont and extract CBD themselves, testing it for quality and purity at every step of the way. They never use pesticides, herbicides, or GMOs because Sun's Oil does everything in-house. They keep their their products simple. Therefore, they can offer the highest quality CBD at unbeatable prices. In fact, Sun's Oil products have half the price of other ingestible CBD brands. And every Sun's Oil product is USDA, USDA organic, including their oil drops, soft gels, capsules, and coconut oil. Uh, I like to put a few of the oil drops in my morning coffee or sometimes after a workout and in my smoothie. Um, or sometimes I take a soft gel at night before getting some great sleep. Sun's Oil removes all the guesswork by making pure and simple CBD products at an unbeatable price. Get 30% off your first order by going to sunsoil.com slash dailybeans. That's S-U-N-S-O-I-L dot com slash dailybeans for 30% off your first order. All right, everybody, welcome back. It is time for the good news. Well, we're blowed on good news. It's on the way. And joining me for the good news on Quarantine Confessions is Jordan Coburn. Hello. It is me. Hello. 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 How are you? I'm good. Yeah. <laughs> same. Excellent. <laughs> Excellent. <laughs> it is t- same as it was 10 minutes ago. Uh-huh. It is time. Uh, this is my favorite segment um, to kick off the week. And I would, if you don't mind, I would like to start the good news block with a little bit of schadenfreude. Schadenfreude. All right. You're going to love this, uh, Jordan. Devin Nunes. Uh, it has 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 hit another legal hurdle, another legal cattle guard, if you will, <laughs> a cow blocker. 
if you would put it that way. Uh, he wanted his shit to be moved to Virginia. He wanted his trial to be moved to Virginia. <laughs> and the judge was like, nah, bro, we're going to do it uh, in New York. So <laughs> he, he didn't get his change of venue request. And he's going to be hard pressed to prove his little defamation suit in New York. So that's fun. Mm-hmm. Um and uh, another good news, a, a federal judge has tossed out one American Network's defamation suit against Rachel Maddow and MSNBC. They're like, nah, this is bullshit. It's, it's baseless. You're Russian. Fuck off. <laughs> I'm paraphrasing. She didn't actually say that. But um, and did you see the, the OAN reporter the other day asked the question, um, would Trump consider pardoning Obama? Oh, my God. What the fuck? No, I did not see that. Just insinuating that Obama is going to be indicted and is a criminal. I mean, like, holy shit. Wow. Like, fuck. Get the... I can't believe she's allowed in that fucking newsroom. Yeah. Unfortunately, I can. But that's insane. (laughs) Yeah. It was pretty ridiculous. Uh, And Kelly McInerney, McNugget, she held up a check uh, that Trump wrote to a donation for, like, a donation, his part of his salary or some shit to some veterans organization. And she held it up. Oops. It actually had Trump's uh, routing number and bank account information <laughs> on it. So <laughs> he's going to have to probably change that. <laughs> That's amazing. What a dumbass. I know. That's a pool that leads to nowhere, though. <laughs> he probably only fills that account up with whatever amount he needs to launder money with, and then it's empty again. <laughs> Yeah, Deutsche Bank just Venmo's it to him real quick <laughs> while he floats checks. Um, all right, so what uh, with the Schadenfreude out of the way, what is our listener good good news? Yes, this, this weekend we've got a few fantastic ones. Our first one comes from Anonymous. Anonymous says, my wife and I are financially secured during the crisis since we are both working from home. She suggested that we donate our stimulus check and quickly agreed when I told her about the coronavirus relief fund set up by the folks from Pod Save America. I only knew about it thanks to MSW, so thank you ladies for telling me about it. When we got our stimulus debit card today, I immediately donated it all. It feels right to be passing the government's money on to who really needs it. P.S. I put in the notes section of the donation, Trump sent us this money to give to you. I really hope somewhere there is a charity (laughs) staffer who gets a laugh or a smile out of that. But if not, it still makes me smile. (laughs) That's so funny. And nice. (laughs) And now we know and we can get a laugh and a smile out of it. Mm -hmm. Definitely. I love it. Uh, Next up from Carrie. Carrie says, on Friday, I got the surprise of my life. I went to my parents' house to help my mom with a surprise for my dad's birthday. I have not seen I have seen but not hugged either of my parents since the beginning of March. They are healthy, but because my husband still works, we're all just being cautious. So I start walking up to the door and surprise, my daughter opens the door, holding my five month old grandson whom I whom I had not even met yet. I don't recall what happened for a while after that, other than happy tears and that I had the most beautiful being I have ever seen in my arms at last. My daughter, her husband, and my beautiful grandson moved from California back to Idaho. They've been planning for weeks and kept it as a surprise for me. My entire family was in on it. Oh, my gosh. Oh. That's beautiful. Wow. Oh, man. I got something in my eye. Uh, Yeah, seriously. What an incredible... I can't think of a... You can't one-up that surprise party. You surprise them with life? (laughs) Good luck. (laughs) 
I know, right? The only thing I, it reminded me of briefly is some of those, like, store, like those videos of, uh, you know, military personnel coming home from overseas and, and greeting their dogs or their kids and surprising them or, you know, like, that's just, but this is, mm-hmm. that's top flight. Yes. Top flight. Truly. Congratulations. That's so beautiful. Thank you for writing. Next up from Daniel. Daniel says, follow up on my last good news. The test results came back from my wife's lumpectomy and the mass was not cancerous. And it looks like we've managed to Yay! go in and out of Greenville hospitals half a dozen times in the past month without contract, con- contacting, oh my God, contracting COVID. Everything's coming <laughs> up, Millhouse. <laughs> Everything's coming up, Millhouse. Congratulations. I remember that. I remember sharing uh you know a little empathy because i had had um i had had that happen and we were sending out thoughts that it would be benign and it is and that is awesome and that you didn't contract coronavirus from all the multiple visits to the hospital as well jordan hopefully that'll bring you a little peace you've got a little thing coming up that you have to go to a hospital for yes so that does that does bring me peace i have faith that everything's gonna be okay just like it was for for daniel and his wife so congratulations um next up from anonymous anonymous says my great news this week i wrote to my child's public high school to request that they get rid of the boys uniform and girls uniform lists on their website i suggested that they just list the school uniform items without mentioning gender several days later it is done result background we are in australia where most public schools have uniforms the uniform is polo shirts cargo pants and short skirts etc nothing fancy like blazers and ties Cool. That's great. I'm surprised yeah. that they were so receptive to that. I feel like usually if you make a suggestion like that, people are either like, fuck you. I'll do what I want. I don't have to succumb <laughs> to all your freaking spectrums or whatever. Or, or they're like, this is a great idea. Thank you so much for suggesting this. Instead, they just actually did it. That's amazing. Action. I love it. Mm. Indeed. Beautiful. Although good notes are always obviously good, but that's really cool. And that's like a <laughs> that's a relatively easy way to make a change. That's like pretty cool. I guarantee you so many of the students were thinking, this is fucking shitty. So hopefully you made people more comfortable. Yeah. That's really cool. Yeah. Next up from A D. A D says, Good news. The charges against Kenneth Walker have been dropped. Kenneth was the partner of Brianna Taylor. The frontline healthcare worker who was murdered by police in her sleep as they executed a no-knock warrant for a suspect who did not live there and was already in custody. I had such a ball of justified anger and despair in my stomach hearing that story. The sadness at Brianna's killing remains, but the additional victimization of her partner in this has been dropped. Thank you to Governor Bashir for directing investigation into the LMPD's actions and to all Kentucky voters who elected him. I can't imagine that Matt Bevan would have lifted a finger to aid in restoring justice in this case. Even if your state sends someone like Moscow Mitch to the Senate, every single election in office has the potential to impact real lives. Awesome. That's awesome. I'm so glad that Bashir did that, and I'm so glad that Kentucky voted for a democratic governor and i sure hope they do the same for the senate come november me too thank you for sending that how great yeah that concludes good news for this week thank you everybody for sending them in please send them in to our new submission form which you can find at you can find the link at our pinned tweet on our daily beans pod twitter which is at daily beans pod 
and then you can also find it on our main Bowler Shiro website on the top right hand corner. So please do that. Keep submitting them. We love them and they're the best. And now it's time for our final segment and the best segment Confessions. <laughs> All right, so for quarantine confessions, our first up is from Patrick. Patrick says, I read the book If Polar Bears Disappeared to My Six-Year-Old Son. The book is an easy way to explain the effects of climate change to young children. My son is very sensitive and got teary-eyed hearing about all the animals becoming endangered as a result of climate change. He wiped his eyes and said, You know what, Dad? I'm expecting him to talk about the circle of life or say that we should try to help the polar bears. But no, he threw a curveball at me. It's kind of nice that coronavirus is around, because if lots of people die, then people won't be burning as much stuff. I didn't know what to say, so I just gave him the old, hmm, that's one way to look at it. I think I've raised an em- environmental misanthrope. <laughs> <laughs> yes, you're raising a Thanos. <laughs> that's funny. Uh, but I think that that's a very, like... I mean, it's, what is that utilitarianism? Isn't that when, that's like this idea that some amount of moral relativity, right, is applied to different seemingly objectively like negative things. Um, I think that that's, before this pandemic, that's that's definitely like a very interesting discussion to have. What the impact of so many humans being on the planet means and when we talk about like population control in the beginning part as in you know maybe don't have like 10 kids that seems to be (laughs) a very well received and like understandable argument but then as soon as you start talking about anything once people are alive obviously it gets a bit dicey and thanosy for sure um but that's a amazing discussion that he stumbled on so that's that's good (laughs) if if anything i think that their brains working on working on that level that's pretty cool um also good on you for trying to teach kids about climate change so early that's yeah that's the best part really really important and dope yes next up from philip philip says like a lot of people i've noticed my alcohol intake go up during the corona apocalypse my cat has got into a routine where as soon as I open a beer, she starts wailing for kitty treats. <laughs> Makes sense to her, I guess. <laughs> Humans get treats. The cat should get treats. To try to get myself into better habits, I got myself a case of non-alcoholic craft beers. Unfortunately, the cat doesn't realize that they're non-alcoholic, so has carried on wailing whenever I open one up. I wondered how I could make her understand that I'm not drinking alcohol, but then I realized that even if she could understand, she wouldn't give a rat's ass anyway, because cats make the rules. Mm-hmm. <laughs> i wonder if she's just like like if you've been you know if you've been up and you're drinking and every time you have a beer you just like overly treat the cat right like and so every time you crack open a beer the cat's like all right it's treat time yeah. here we go and so now now they just won't leave you alone and you're right even if you could explain it was non-alcoholic mm-hmm. they wouldn't give a fuck no 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 i definitely do think drunk people make the best cat people for sure the more i think about it you're probably more down for cuddles, treats, talks. You know what cats and humans do. Staying up late talking about 
what the world could be and all. Sounds like a beautiful moment. Um, and then the cats just... I'm just thinking in cats' musical terms at this point. I have a whole thing happening in my head that I'm going to stop because we're going on to our next quarantine confession from Anonymous. <laughs> Anonymous says, I've started responding to work emails late at night and setting timers on them to send in the morning. People think I'm an early go-getter when really I'm a total night owl and sleeping until 10 minutes before my first Zoom meeting. Uh, yes. I completely understand that. What's the etiquette on that, by the way? Well, I guess if you set the timers on them, it doesn't doesn't matter that that's how you fix that issue but do you when you get an email from someone that's super late at night ag do you think what the fuck is this person doing with their life do you think that (laughs) not recently Mm -hmm. Uh, because you know what day is it right uh but uh yeah yeah though all you know uh most of the shit i get in the middle of the night is from like businesses and companies that that send that shit out you know at 3 a.m so that you get it when you first wake up but yeah it's like if it's a personal person i'm like okay yeah totally all right 4 a.m yeah definitely speaking of uh what day is it there's (laughs) there's this other podcast called y'all ever that's actually on starburns audio as well um but there's this really really funny guy that's a host it's do you know hampton yunt yep yep, yeah hampton yeah he's 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 one of my favorite comedians he does the vote the voice of um tom servo in the new iteration of mystery science theater 3000 yes totally he's incredibly funny too he does like yeah he's a really really good stand-up but his his podcast partner i hadn't heard of actually sorry but uh he does (laughs) on his Dave Ross. If you look him, hit, look him up on Twitter, he has this really funny bit where every single tweet that he's made just says, what day is it? And it's like, you keep reading, you know, and then and then you, you imagine it's like something about coronavirus. But then as you keep going, you see that he's been tweeting, what day is it every day for the last like two years or something? <laughs> it's like, it's so funny. It's a good bit. If you like Twitter bits, twit bits, go look at Dave Ross on Twitter. <laughs> twit bits. Twit bits. Anyways, <clears throat> our next one coming from Anonymous. Also, man, y'all are scared today. I love it. <laughs> from Anonymous. Uh, I've been microdosing with edibles for days. It makes quarantine, my husband, and homeschool tolerable. My husband is pretty uptight about edibles or other illicit substances in the house, so I hid them somewhere. No one would find them, and I've been keeping a low-key high going on for days. I'm not sorry. I was high when I wrote this. <laughs> I, I would be so up afraid of not being able... <laughs> I would be so afraid of not being able to find where I hid them. Yeah. That's true, especially when you're high. It's kind of like a Velma looking for her glasses situation. <laughs> if you're high looking for some shit that you can't remember <laughs> where it is, it's not an ideal scenario. Um, <laughs> that's so That's so funny. That's the most juicy one we may have gotten yet. It involves drugs, and that's it. I, I was going to list <laughs> off some other things, but that's it. Um, I love it. We Being high, I was just... I'm so obnoxious talking to my parents about this now, like the benefits of being high just mentally. And I'm like, you guys got to fucking try it seriously. And it is such a, it is, it is such a 
cathartic, wonderful privilege to be able to openly do it and talk about it in front of my parents. And I'm sorry that you have to restrict yourself, but that's a hilarious confession. And um, good for you. <laughs> and you, you got a standing ovation for <laughs> Yes. All right. Our final confession comes from Anonymous, exercising via Zoom class on the ver- veranda. What is that? Veranda. Veranda. It's a porch. Ah. Yeah. Cool. Veranda. Member from Three Amigos when she's like, perhaps we could go do something and then you could kiss me on the veranda. And he says, the lips would be fine. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, my God. It's so funny. Okay. Exercising via Zoom class on the veranda had some advantages over the gym. Apart from being quieter to get or quicker to get there, no one is to know if in the course of your workout, you let loose with an exercise induced fart. I am now worried that when things go back to normal, I might forget and let loose with a ripper in the middle of class. I hope everyone will be wearing masks. <laughs> <laughs> I wonder if the I wonder if masks oh help with God. farts. Yeah, yeah, you got you've got you have a loose butthole right now. You got to tighten that shit up when you go in public again. It's gotten it's it's had too many privileges over the last couple months. <laughs> <laughs> oh my gosh. <laughs> That's so funny. Well, that's all of our quarantine confessions, everybody. Thank you. And keep submitting them, please. Yes. Awesome. And we are going to be starting uh, an entire spinoff podcast on quarantine confessions because we are overwhelmed with your responses, not in a bad way, in a very good way. There are so many quarantine confessions that our first episode is going to be dropping on June 6th. It's going to be in its own feed, uh, and uh, you'll need to search for it and subscribe to it and listen to it, and we'll just keep it going as long as we keep getting confessions. Uh, We absolutely love them. And it would be a nice, you know, light break from what we, you know, talk about most of the time. We are keeping the good news, the listener submitted good news block at the end of the Daily Beans. However, because we still need that lilt at the end of the show. Uh, so we look forward to uh, to doing that. Maybe we'll have some people call in and tell us their confessions. Uh, you know, I don't know. We'll see. It's going to be great. It's going to be interesting, but it's brand new and I'm excited about it. Me too. Very excited. It's going to be a good time. My only final thought is that everyone have a safe Memorial Day weekend. Uh, you know, please practice social dis- distancing, wear a mask. People in San Diego aren't wearing masks. It's bumming me out. Um, I, f- I feel like because, you know, we're quote unquote open, people are like, I don't have to wear my mask anymore. Um, oh, yeah. You and I are neighbors now, so you'll know exactly what I'm talking about. But I was w- driving down university just looking at the restaurants that are open and they're like as full as they could be while still seeming like they're practicing the guidelines, but so many people not wearing masks. Yeah, it's frightening. Um, I'm wearing mine, um, and I'm I'm mostly staying at home. So uh, I hope I hope y'all do the same. Just be safe, and uh, let's remember those who have you know who've sacrificed their lives to to. I mean, it's it's a bittersweet holiday. Um, but I think we should just take a minute to remember that. And um, that's it. That's all I have. So everyone, please take care of yourselves, take care of each other, take care of the planet, and take care of your mental health. I've been AG. I've been Jordan Coburn. And them's The Beans. The Daily Beans is executive produced and directed by AG and Jordan Coburn and engineered and edited by Mackenzie Mazel and Starburns Industries. Our marketing manager, executive assistant, production and social media direction is Amanda Reeder. Fact-checking and research by AG, Jordan Coburn, and Amanda Reeder. Our music is written and performed by They Might Be Giants. Our web design and branding are by Joel Reeder with Moxie Design Studios. And our website is dailybeanspod.com. <laughs>